We're doing a study on the attributes of God. First night, we talked about the holiness of God, um, because that's the primary attribute of God. Uh, then we talked about the love of God. Tonight, we're going to talk about the grace of God. And as I approach this, I'll tell you what I decided to do as I was driving over here. I'm changing up what I'm going to do, what I plan to do on the grace of God. I'm going to take a little different direction. I'm going to take a little different tact. Um, I'm going to um, run this attribute of God through a message that some of you have heard before. About a year and a half ago, I covered for Chuck on a Sunday morning, and I did this message. But it was the Reader's Digest form. I was hustling because of time. It, uh, it was compact. It was compressed. It, uh, what I normally do, it all didn't get in there. We've got a little more time on Wednesday nights. And I, I want to go back to those same passages. So some of you guys are going to say, I've heard this before, and you're right. Some of you heard it, and you don't remember it. Uh, that often happens uh, to me uh, when guys say, Yo, you, know, you, you taught on that? I don't remember that you taught on it. Uh, but it's such a foundational concept. Um, it's about the grace of God. Uh, the grace of God, everything that we have is attributed to the grace of God. Everything. Uh, every breath is attributed to the grace of God. Um, let me give you a definition of the grace of God before we launch into this. Uh, the, the grace of God, we sing about it. We, we, uh, we have a hymn called Amazing Grace because the grace of God is, is utterly and completely amazing. Uh, what is grace? Grace is the free act of God, tempered, by justice and holiness, in bestowing undeserved favor upon condemned mankind. I'll do that one more time. Grace is the free act of God, tempered by justice and holiness, in bestowing undeserved favor upon condemned mankind. I have a question for you, and my question is this. The question is, why are you here? That's the question. And you may say, uh, well, I always show up on Wednesday nights. Or you may say, hey, it's my first night here, but he invited me. That's why I'm here. Uh, when I ask the question, why are you here, that's really not the answer that I'm after. When I ask the question, why are you here, what I'm really asking is this question. I'm asking, uh, why do you exist? That's the question. Why are you alive? Why are you walking the earth now and not 300 years ago or not 300 years in the future? Uh, I think this is the central issue in a man's life. I think it's the central question in a man's life. Why am I alive? Why am I here? There are times when that is clear to us. There are times when we've got a grip on it. There are times when we have a sense, a purpose, and a sense of meaning. 
But there are other times as we go down the trail of life where that becomes unclear to us. There, there are times when we lose our way, when, when a, a fog descends on us, and we just can't quite get our bearings. We get vertigo in terms of our purpose in life. And when that happens to us, we get frustrated, and we get, uh, uh, we, we get tense, and we can't sleep because we're, we, we, we want to be doing what we're supposed to be doing, but we've lost that sense of purpose and direction. Um, I have a premise, and my premise is that the Christian life is a trail, a trail. Uh, there are many famous trails in America. There's the Appalachian Trail, runs from Georgia up to Maine. In Mississippi, they have the Natchez Trace. It's just a wisp of a trail. Uh, we're not too far from what was known as the uh, Chisholm Trail. Let's say 150 years ago, if you were looking for a new start, uh, you could uh, provision a wagon, get your wife and kids, and uh, go to Oregon because you could homestead some grassland there, and uh, you could get a new start. Uh, if you've never been to Oregon before, you had two options. Number one, you could just start heading west and try to figure it out for yourself, the best way to get to Oregon. Or secondly, uh, your next option would be to get on the Oregon Trail. Uh, the Oregon Trail... The advantage of getting on the Oregon Trail was very simple. The Oregon Trail was a marked trail. There's always wisdom in getting on a marked trail. Always. Um, the Bible is a marked trail. The Bible is written by the creator of life. And in the scriptures, he gives us a trail, a marked trail, on how to live our lives. Uh, the Oregon Trail was marked by those who had gone before and successfully reached the destination. Um, that's why there's great wisdom in getting on a marked trail. Um, I, I, I mentioned that the scriptures are a marked trail. Uh, you know, the Bible is the best-selling book of all time. Uh, we thank God for that. The second best-selling book of all time, interestingly enough, is a book written by a man named John Bunyan, who was thrown in jail for 12 years. The, the story that he wrote in his book called Pilgrim's Progress is a story about a man named Christian who was on a trail, who was on a path. Gentlemen, we are on a path. We are on a trail. Stop with, and think with me just for a minute about all the verses that come to your mind, all the verses in the Bible that speak of the trail. Well, you can't think of any, can you? Had you nervous there for a minute. I've never seen the word trail in the Bible. Have you? Let me ask you this. Have you ever seen the word path? What's a path? It's a trail. Yeah. You ever seen the word way? What's a way? It's a path. It's a trail. Jesus spoke of two trails. Jesus said broad is the road that leads to destruction. He could have said broad is the trail. Broad is the trail that leads to destruction. Um, How old are you? How old are your peers? It's a good question, isn't it? Uh, if you are 15 or if you are 55, can I say this about your peers, about your peer group? Uh, the majority of your peers are on the wrong trail going the wrong direction. That's true when you're in high school. It's true when you're 55. Broad is the road that leads to destruction. 
But then Jesus said, narrow is the gate that leads to life, and few are those who find it. That's the second trail, the narrow trail or the broad trail. Uh, if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn with me to Psalm 139. Because in, one, in Psalm 139, and let me say a word about the Psalms. The, the Psalms to me are like a great mountain range. If you've ever driven into Colorado from the east, uh, you've been in the plains. It's pretty flat, it's pretty dull, it's pretty boring, quite frankly. And then suddenly off on the horizon, in the distance, you'll see the jagged outline of the Rocky Mountains. Uh, when I open my Bible, right in the middle, it falls to Psalms. Uh, you know, the Rockies, if you look at a map of the United States, the Rockies are right middle left. Um, when you see the Rockies, some of those peaks are bigger than others, but the Rockies are a unit. There are a lot of peaks in the Rockies. There are a lot of Psalms in the Psalms. There are 150 Psalms. Some are bigger than others. Some are uh, longer than others. But they're a unit, and they're all connected, and they all have a purpose. One of the greatest of the Psalms is Psalm 139. Uh, in Psalm 139, David answers the question, why am I alive? Why do I exist? What is my purpose? Um, he begins to answer that question in verse 13. Um, I, I want to make a point uh, about David's quest uh, to understand why it is that he is alive, and what his purpose is in life. What I want you to note about Psalm 139 is, is that in asking the question, why am I alive, why do I exist, David doesn't begin with himself. He begins with God. If he was going to begin with himself, we wouldn't look at verse 13, we'd look at verse 1. But you see, in the first 12 verses of this psalm, he doesn't talk about himself, he talks about God. Um... There's a great principle. Uh, we live in a culture that is intoxicated with self. Self uh, is a very popular God in our culture. So you have, uh, we have self-fulfillment, we have self-realization, we have self-analysis. Jesus said some things about self. Jesus said, uh, if you were gonna follow him, he said to take up your cross, follow me. He said, deny, what? Yourself. Well, that runs counter to Oprah. Not that you guys watch Oprah. Uh, but from what I understand, you know, there, there's just a lot of stuff about self. About self. If you want to get the answer to the question, why am I alive? Why do I exist? You don't begin with self. Our answer uh, to everything in our culture, to everything, is, well, you need to just look deep down inside what? Yourself. There are no answers there, guys. If you look deep down inside yourself, you're not going to get answers. There's nothing there that's going to help you. Uh, looking down deep inside yourself is like going scuba diving in a septic tank. <laughs> because your heart and my heart, Jeremiah says, are desperately sick, the heart. The heart is desperately sick and wicked. Who can know it? The answer to our, to our dilemmas is not by looking inside ourselves. The answer to our dilemma is found by looking outside of ourselves and looking up to the one who made us. 
Now, we're going to ask this question. We're going to answer, why am I alive? Why do I exist? But let's do what David does. Let's begin with God. Uh, in, in Psalm 139, beginning with verse 1, he's going to talk about God. The, the greatness of God, the power of God, the majesty of God, the fact that God is everywhere, the fact that God knows everything. If you could title Psalm 139, you could very easily title it, My God Can Beat Up Your God. That's the message of Psalm 139. There are a lot of false gods in the world. But our God is the one true God. Our God is not Allah. Our God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Let's get a running start at 139. He says, Lord, you've searched me and known me. He says, Steve, wait a minute. What does this have to do with the grace of God? We'll just stay with it. And you'll see. Lord, you have searched me and known me. Can I ask you something? How long has God known you? He's known you forever. To the prophet Jeremiah, God said this. God said, before I formed you, I knew you. Do you know why you were alive? Do you know why you breathe? Do you know why you exist? You exist and are alive and you breathe and you have been brought into existence by the grace of God. That's why you're alive. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. He's known you forever. Um, you know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. God knows everything about us. Uh, he, he understands everything about you. He understands everything about me. Um, that, that's a great statement because as men, there are times when we don't understand ourselves. Have you ever done something and then later thought to yourself, why the heck did I do that? Have you ever said something and regretted it? Why did I say that? Have you ever been angry and wondered why you're angry? That's happened to me. I'm angry. I don't even know why I'm angry. That's how screwed up I am. You see? But you're as screwed up as I am. I, I told you about the book I want to do one day. I've told you that. I mean, I'm, I'm going to do this. At some point, I'm hoping to do it. It's, it's really based off the book that was a bestseller 30 years ago. I'm okay, you're okay. I want to do a book called I'm Screwed Up, You're Screwed Up. We're all screwed up. We don't even understand ourselves. That's how screwed up that we are. But he understands me. He understands my thought from afar. It goes on and it says, You scrutinize my path and my lying down. You're intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, Lord, you know it all. Every word you'll ever utter for the rest of your life until the moment you die, God knows what you will say. I, I had a book here a few weeks ago. And it was a little booklet on famous last words. The last words that famous people uttered. Do you know that God already knows your last words? What they will be. He knows your last words. He's known your last year, words since before he created the world. Because he knows every word you'll ever utter for the rest of your life. He knows the nuances with which you'll say those words. He knows uh, your last words if they'll be bitter. Uh, he, he knows if there'll be a spirit of rebelliousness. He knows if there will be a sense of joy and, and a sense of anticipation, the last words you ever utter. Um, he goes on here. He says, you have enclosed me behind and before. This is an amazing statement. It has all to do with the grace of God. Um, You've enclosed me behind him before. Some of you guys know that I like to read biographies. I love biographies. I've yet to read a biography that I didn't, I didn't learn something from. 
Every biography I've ever read um, uh, breaks up in the chapters. I've never seen an exception to that. Um, when we die, no one's going to write a biography about us. We're, we're just regular guys. We're just average guys. But as you're here tonight, and as you're sitting here tonight, we could give every guy in this room, we could hand out legal pads and ask you to do this. We could ask you to look back over your life. We could ask you to look over your back trail. We're on a trail. We could ask you to look over your back trail, and then we could ask you to write out the chapters of your life. And you know what? You could do it. Because your life is just like a biography. You look back, and you can see clearly marked, identifiable chapters with a beginning, a middle, and an end, and you could title them. That's how clear the chapters are in your life and in my life. Now, you know what's amazing about that? This says, you have enclosed me behind and before. The chapters you've come through are clearly marked. They are clearly delineated. Uh, you were in college. Then you got out of college. And then you took your first job. You moved somewhere. And you didn't know anybody. And then, you know, and then you met your wife. And then you guys got married. And then you got a job offer and you moved to Odessa or someplace. You know, then you had your first child. And you were there two years and then another company asked you to come, and you moved to Wichita, and you were there five years, and you had two children born there, and then on down through life, and here you are tonight. You've enclosed me behind, but then he says, you've enclosed me before. I remember talking with a guy uh, years ago who had been an executive with IBM, and uh, uh, this was, IBM never laid people off, but they were going through some really difficult times, and um, um, they were letting him go. And he was in a state of shock. This guy had done pretty well. He, he'd, he'd advanced uh, nicely through the levels at IBM. And uh, he was thinking that he would be there another seven or eight years and then retire. He was absolutely shocked that they were going to let him go. He was stunned. And as we were having lunch and as we were talking about this, he was trying to come to grips with us and there were, uh, grips about it. And there was a lot of anxiety and there was a lot of concern uh, and as we were talking about this, at one point I said to him, I said, you realize, don't you, that IBM didn't lay you off? And he said, what do you mean? Of course they laid me off. I said, IBM didn't lay you off. The Lord Jesus Christ laid you off. I said, do you think, do you really believe that your destiny and your future is in the hands of some human resource committee at IBM? Do you believe that? There's no way. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it whatever way he wishes. Those guys could have been unanimous. They were going to let you go. But if God wanted you to stay another eight years, they would have all changed their mind. But see, they didn't change their mind. They decided to let you go. You're in a state of shock because in your mind, see, on your day timer, on your seven-year strategic plan, and your palm pilot, you had it set that this chapter at IBM was going to last eight more years. You know what? You were wrong. God had determined this chapter has come to an end. Now, you're worried and anxious because you don't know what's going to happen. But see, as you're here today, if you could look out five years and see the chapters that God has for you next, you wouldn't be worried and you wouldn't be anxious. You just can't see it. 
But your destiny is not in the hands at IBM. You know who, you know who runs Microsoft? God runs Microsoft. You know who runs Bill Gates? Nobody runs Bill Gates. <laughs> God runs Bill Gates. God runs everything. R.C. Sproul has said that in God's universe, there's not one maverick molecule. He upholds all things by the word of his power. All things. You look back on your life, you see chapters. There are chapters that are as clearly written for us that we have yet to walk through as the ones that we have come through. Now let me ask you something. As you look back over those chapters, do you see at all the grace of God? That's all you see. In the good things, you see the grace of God. In the bad things, you see the grace of God. Some of you guys wouldn't be Christians unless you had a chapter in your life where the bottom fell out and everything you were counting on and depending on absolutely collapsed in your life. That was the grace of God. It's what brought you to him. You look back over the chapters of your life and you see grace. You see grace. You see grace. The chapters that are ahead, sometimes we get worried about the future. But there's grace. John Piper wrote a book called Future Grace. And the premise of that book is very simple. We've all received grace and we're grateful for the grace. But you know what? You can't live today off the grace you got yesterday. Every moment and every day, I need fresh grace. And, and the fact of the matter is, is that God will continue to supply the grace that I need at every moment in the future. The grace will come precisely at the moment when I need it. Precisely. Your whole life is characterized by grace. Uh, you've enclosed me behind him before. Uh, he says, you've laid your hand on me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. You starting to get a sense about the greatness of God? Now let's jump down to verse 13. He's going to get right to it. Why am I alive? Why do I exist? Well, here's the answer. He says, for you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. That's quite a statement. So here's a question. Why are you tall? Why are you short? Uh, why are you white? Or why are you black? Why are you uh, brown? Are you Asian? Uh, why do you have the ethnicity that you have? Why are you of the race that you are of? Why is that? Why is that? Here's another one for you. Um, why are you good at math? Some of you guys, math just comes easy to you. You've had an aptitude for math all your life. You didn't struggle. You just, math, it just, yeah, it just kind of made sense. Any of you guys here, math just kind of, yeah. I hate your guts. <laughs> You screwed up the curve. <laughs> you set the mark too high. Now, I'm happy for you that you're good at math. But here's the question. If you're good at math, why are you good at math? Why? You, know, you want to know why you're good at math? 
because of the grace of God. When God shaped you and formed you in your mother's womb, he made you good at math. He gave you an aptitude for math. He gave you a mind that considers numbers and they fall into place and you don't show. See, he just, that's, that's the grace of God. Some of you guys have great people skills. Um, you never met a stranger. You walk into a room of 300 strangers and in um, uh, you know, five minutes you've met everybody, you've introduced everybody to everybody else and you've got a party on your hands. Where did you get that skill with people? Where did you get that gift with people? God gave it to you when he formed you and shaped you in your mother's womb. That's where you got it. That gift of people is the result of the grace of God in your life. You might make a living off of your ability to work with people. You might make your living off your ability to work numbers. That's the grace of God. Um, some of you are good with your hands. Some of you can fix anything. Um, I always say that if I break down out on the interstate, I'm there for weeks. <laughs> when God was passing out those gifts, I didn't get them. But I have seen some of you guys. You're driving down 635. You blow an engine. You've got flames coming out from under the hood. You calmly pull over, um, pop the trunk, pull out a hoist, switch engines, and 10 minutes you're on your way. <laughs> now, how do you do that? It's no big deal to you. I mean, you don't even think. It's just second nature to you. You know why it's second nature to you? Because of the grace of God. When he formed you and fashioned you, he made you good with your hands. He made you mechanical. That's a gift. It's a grace. That's what it is. Oftentimes, guys good with their hands think they're not smart. And the reason they think they're not smart is because of the educational system in America. Uh, a, a book called The Seven Kinds of Smart um, proposes that there are seven kinds of intelligence in the world, but the public school system in America only acknowledges and rewards two out of the seven kinds of intelligence. You guys that are good with your hands, you're brilliant. Where did you get that gift? You got it by the grace of God. Everything in your life, everything in my life is a result of the grace of God, the unmerited favor of God. Let's go on. Why am I alive? Why do I exist? Uh, in 14, he says, I'll give thanks to you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. He's not on an ego trip. He's just acknowledging what God has done in his life. He says in verse 15, my frame or my bones were not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of of the earth. So why are you here? Why are you alive? Why do you exist? Do you ever think about this? Sure you do. Every man thinks about it. What's my purpose? See, you know what? When we, when we struggle with meaning, uh, when we struggle with significance, it's tough on us. Because we don't want to waste our lives. We want our lives to count. We want to know that we're contributing. We, we want to know that we're doing something uh, that is sterling. We, we want to leave something behind. We don't want to waste our lives. We, we just don't want to appear and live and then disappear. Um, we're looking for significance. We're looking for meaning. Um, my bones were not hidden from thee when I was skillfully wrought. He's referring to his mother's womb. I got a question for you. 
if your father had not have married your mother, would you be here? This is not a trick question. If your father had not have married your mother, let me ask you this. What if your dad had married that cheerleader from that other high school that he had a crush on? You don't know anything about this. But don't you think that before your dad met your mom, there was a gal he was interested in? Well, let me ask you something. What if your father had married that cheerleader? Would you be here? The answer is no. Because, you see, for you to get here, it took a particular sperm with one particular egg. Now, that cheerleader didn't have the egg. Your mother had the egg. If your father had married that cheerleader, guess what? You wouldn't exist. But see, your father didn't marry that cheerleader. Your father married your mother, and here you are. That's why you're alive. What about, uh, what about grandfather? What if grandfather had married that girl from that other farm instead of grandma? Would you be here? No. But you're here. What about great-grandfather? What about Great, great. Have you guys ever thought about what it took to get you here? Have you ever considered this? A lot of times in church we'll say, you're not here by accident. No one's here by chance. That's absolutely true. Do you realize that for, th why am I alive? Why do I exist? Why am I here? Do you realize that for thousands of years, God has overseen your family history? Good and bad. He's overseen man, woman, man, woman, man, woman, man, woman, and if at just one intersection of those relationships through thousands of years, the right man had to, miss the, the, had to miss the right woman just one time, you wouldn't be here, but you're here. If during all those thousands of years, just one time, one sperm had to miss one egg just once, you wouldn't be here. But you're here. The grace of God has been overseeing your family history all the way back to Adam and Eve to make sure that you would be alive and exist and walk the face of the earth tonight. Have you ever thought about that? That is wild stuff. That's amazing. I had a guy mention to me one time. He said, well, you know, Steve, I'm illegitimate. I said, really? Is that what God calls you? I knew what he meant. Uh, I said, what you're saying is that your parents weren't married. Uh, you're the result you're the product of sexual sin. He said, yeah. I, I said, you know, the great thing about God is that God, throughout history, is the God who brings good out of bad. He brings good out of evil. Their sexual sin was, was wrong. It was sin. It was evil. But see, you're the good that God brought out of it. You look back over your family history, and everybody's, uh, everybody's got good and everybody's got bad. But the grace of God has been overseeing everything. Uh, that's why you're here. That's why you're alive. Um, he goes on. He makes a, a remarkable statement in um, verse 16. He says, your eyes have seen my unformed substance. Some of you guys a few months ago saw the uh, newsletter from Focus on the Family with a remarkable picture on the front cover. It was a picture of a, of a surgeon, a pediatric surgeon, getting ready to go in and operate on a 24-week-old unborn child. 
I think it was 24. I'll put money down on it. <laughs> we'll get a drink and we'll play the slots later. How's that? I'm almost sure it was 24. Um, let's just say it's 24. Let's humor me. 24-week-old unborn child had some spinal problems. They can operate on unborn children now. Is that not amazing? So you see the picture. You see the surgeon's gloved hands. You see the scalpel that made the incision in the mother's womb. And as he's going in to operate on this 24-week-old unborn child, a um, perfect, tiny, little human hand reaches out and grabs his pinky finger. And the nurse had the presence of mind to run out and get a camera and get the shot. Now that's amazing. That is amazing. See, at 24 weeks, that little baby's formed. There's still some growth and development, but the hands, the feet, the mouth, the nose. Children are born at 24 weeks and survive. Maybe that's happened in your family. Um, See, guys, that's not, a, uh, that's not a fetus. That's a baby. All this uh, nonsense about abortion. There's some federal judge in New York that's holding a case right now on partial birth abortion, and none of the newspapers will cover it. The New York Times doesn't cover it. Dallas Morning, nobody's covering it. Uh, because what he's making these doctors do, they're, they're, uh, this case is about partial birth abortion. And these guys have all of these um, uh, terms, scientific nonsense terms that they use to describe the procedure so that people won't understand the procedure. And this judge is just driving them nuts. Because when they'll use a term, he says, by that you mean that you insert scissors into the child's brain? Well, we usually don't describe it that way. But that's what you do, yes. And then you stick a catheter in the, this is a child born, full term, full term. Nothing wrong with the child. Nothing wrong with the child. Be completely ill, we just don't want the child. It's partial birth. You know why it's partial birth? Because the entire child is out of the birth canal, but they leave the head just slightly in. Just slightly. They uh, put scissors into the back of the head, then insert a, a catheter and suck the brains out. Uh, John Kerry is for that. If you vote for Kerry, you need to know you're an accessory to what he's doing. All right? I'm not saying Republican or Democrat, but I'm saying you better think twice before you support some of these yo-yos. All right? No candidate's perfect, but you better make sure he doesn't, uh, he doesn't say that, uh, that murder is a matter of personal. Oh, here's the other one. Well, well, I am personally opposed. But, in other words, you don't have the guts to stand on principle. In other words, you're a wuss. You're not a man. You're a gelding. That's what you're saying, right? You're a moral gelding. Okay. I'm just going to calm it down here. 
But this judge, who, by the way, this federal judge is blind. He's blind. And he was asking them about handicapped children in particular that they would do this procedure on. He's making them very, very uncomfortable. So John, uh, so, so Peter Jennings doesn't talk about this, and Dan Rather doesn't talk about it, and Brokaw doesn't talk about it, because they don't want anyone to know about it, because it's such a godless, wicked procedure, you see. So this surgeon's going in to operate on this baby. 24 weeks, little hand grabs his finger. Um, this verse says, Thine eyes have seen my unformed substance. Now think about that. He's got to be talking prior to 24 weeks, doesn't he? When he says unformed, because at 24 weeks, you're formed. You've got hands, you've got feet. I mean, you've got everything at 24 weeks. When, when David says, your eyes have seen my unformed substance, you know what he's talking about? He's talking about conception. At conception, you see, it's a sperm and an egg. You're not formed. He's saying, you knew me, but it's just the same thing he said to Jeremiah. Before I formed you, I knew you. This is an amazing thing, guys. Uh, and then he says something even more amazing. You guys still with me? You guys are really quiet. You're making me nervous. I'm intense? I kind of am intense tonight. Yeah. There's just too much nonsense in this world. There's too much sin. There's too much lying. There's, there's too much BS, quite frankly. And the Mavericks lost last night on that shot. <laughs> Finley just had to hit that shot. Back here, they win three. Anyway, okay. See, I watch basketball because you've got you to calm down over something, don't you? All right. Thine eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in thy book they were all written, the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. That's an amazing statement. You know what that means? Here's what it means, as you're here tonight. It means that God, in his grace, before the foundations of the world, before the foundations of the world, God, did, why are you here? Why are you alive? Here's why. Before the foundations of the world, God determined the moment of your conception. God determined the moment of your birth. God has already determined the moment of your death. Hebrews says, it is appointed for a man once to die. Did you know that the moment of your death has already been set? Are you aware of that? Isn't that comforting? I'll tell you what, it is to me. See, when you get a grip on that, you know what that means? It means you can't die. You absolutely cannot die until your appointed time comes. Uh, and until you die, um, you know what you're going to need? You're going to need food. You're going to need shelter. You're going to need clothing. You've got a family. You've got to provide for your family. Uh, uh, you've got a mortgage. You've got, uh, uh, you've got to pay for insurance. Uh, you, you've got a, you know, retirement. You've got all this stuff. 
You've got all this responsibility. And you know what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus said, don't be what? Anxious about what you're going to eat or about what you're going to wear. So you know what we tend to do as men? We tend to look into the future because we're future-oriented. The term provision, it's a good term. Uh, it means, provision means to see out, to look ahead. That's what it means. So a lot of times we look in the future and we worry and we get anxious because we can't see how everything's going to work. You know the amazing thing about God? God promises to provide and take care of every single one of your needs until the moment you die and he takes you home. That's called grace. Everything you need will be there the moment when you need it. Everything. That's grace. So we come into existence by grace. Um, I think this is really wild stuff. Don't you? Because you, you, we're running around all day and we're working and we're returning calls and we're working on deals and you know we got this and we got family stuff and we got our wives and we got married and we got kids and we got all this stuff going on and see we're just we're all in it we're trying to get it done but 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 see there's God and God is over all of it and God has a divine purpose and God has a divine plan and you're a player in that plan he's assigned you to a post you have a job you have a work you have a position to play that he is divinely appointed. The good things that come into your life are a result of grace. The bad things that come into your life are a result of grace because they'll refine you and conform you into the image of, of, of his son. Uh, God is sovereign over everything in your life that is the grace of God. Um, you can't die. You can't die until the purpose that God has for your life is complete. You cannot die. It's impossible. That might be 40 years from now. It might be tomorrow night at 7.30 on the way home. We don't know. God knows. You're immortal until that moment comes. That's called grace. So you've got to have a big God to pull this off. A real big God. But you know, guys, the, the God of the Bible is a real big God. He's in absolute control. He's in absolute charge. Uh, he's never shocked. He's never surprised. He's never taken back. He's never at a loss for words. Never. He's God. He's running the show. He's running your life. See, this helps me to sleep at night. How about you? See, that's why you're alive, and that's why you exist. Now, you guys still with me? Okay. You guys are very patient, and you guys are very quiet. Uh, I, I think we ought to get some espresso in here and get you guys higher than a kite. Um, none for me. Yeah. I'm already caffeinated, obviously, huh? Go, uh, turn with me to Ephesians 2. On your way to Ephesians 2. So you understand that the reason you're alive, the reason you exist, is by the grace of God? He, he brought you into existence. Anybody here, I'm just curious, anybody here have a child um, 
and I asked this a few weeks ago, or maybe around Thanksgiving. I'm going to do it again. Anybody have a child a year old or younger? Right here. Which, which boy, girl? You got a three-week-old baby boy. And what is his name? Uh, Brandon Jacob. Brandon Jacob. That's great. Okay, so Brandon Jacob is three weeks old. Now let me ask you this. Did you know about Brandon a year ago? God knew about him a year ago. God knew about Brandon 100 years ago. God knew about Brandon 10,000 years ago. God has always known about Brandon. Always. Before you met your wife, was there any other gal that you had an interest in? Uh-huh. And what was her name? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> sure, yeah, I mean, we would all say that. Sure. Yeah, there was a gal that you thought, hey, maybe, but you didn't marry her, did you? No. You met your wife. I bet you there's a story there. And you didn't marry, yeah, he says, oh, yeah. You, you, you didn't marry that other gal. You married your wife by the grace of God. Your wife turned you down for six months. You know, they have a counseling office right over here. We get you in to see Charlton. I think you're still wounded, man, over this. No, I'm just kidding you. But, but see, but she might have turned you down for six months, but she didn't turn you down forever because God had Brandon in mind, and he put you guys together. But God knows who Brandon will marry. He knows Brandon's children. He knows their children and their children. He knows them. He knew Brandon before he formed Brandon. He knew Brandon. Is that not amazing? See, Brandon exists by the grace of God. You exist by the grace of God. You're in Ephesians 2 by now. In Ephesians 2.8, um, it speaks specifically of the grace of God. And here's what it says. It says, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that any man should boast. And we'll just stop right there. It says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. That not of yourselves. Um, John Newton wrote a hymn called, what kind of grace? Amazing grace. Grace is amazing when you get it. In order to get grace... To understand. See, Ephesians 2.8 tells us how we come to know Christ. We looked at Psalm 139 because we were asking the question, why am I alive? Why do I exist? Uh, you're alive physically. You exist physically because God before the foundations of the world willed that you would be conceived and born at a particular moment in time. And that's why you're walking the face of the earth now. Um, so you exist physically by the grace of God. But Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, as they were discussing, Jesus told Nicodemus, he said, Nicodemus, you must be born again. And he said, do I enter into my mother's womb a second time? Jesus said, no. Because the point is, as we're born physically, so we must be born spiritually. 
we have to come into relationship with God the Father. And Ephesians 2.8 tells us how we do that. It's by grace that we have our sins forgiven. It's by grace that we call out to Christ and ask him to come into our lives. That's the grace of God. So, if you guys heard me do this talk before, you know we went through a little deal on this verse. Because there's a phrase in this verse that says, and that not of yourselves. You see it in verse 8? For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. Now, I want to I, I hammer this home. Uh, I want to drive a Mack truck through this to mix my metaphors. When it says, and that not of yourselves, the question is, what is it referring to? You say, why is that important? Because to get a sense of the grace of God that is at work in your life right now and for the rest of your life, you got to get this. And that not of yourselves. What does that refer to? Let's look at it. Let's look at it. It says, for by grace. All right, let's stop there. Is grace something we conjure up? Or is grace a gift of God? That's pretty simple. Grace is the unmerited favor of God upon condemned men. All right? So grace is not of ourselves, for by grace you've been what? Saved. Saved from what? Saved from sin. Um, it, it's pretty fresh in our minds if you saw the passion. What Jesus went through, even before he got to the cross, he was bruised for us. By his stripes we are healed, Isaiah says. He was scourged, he was beaten beyond belief. Uh, so there are a lot of good folks in America, quote unquote, that are trying to do good works and good deeds uh, in order to earn their way to God by their works. But you can't do that. For by grace you've been saved. You're not saved by works. You're saved by the grace of God. Salvation is not of us. Salvation is of God. So grace isn't of ourselves. Salvation is not of ourselves. Then it says, so for by grace you've been saved through what? Faith. Here's a question for you. Is faith something you did, or is faith a gift from God? It's a gift of God. But you say, well, Steve, I asked Christ to come into my life. Well, I did too. But you want to know why you ask Christ to come into your life by faith? You want to know why? Because he gave you the faith. That's why. Ephesians 2.1 is critical. See, uh, Ephesians 2.1. This is why John Newton called his hymn Amazing Grace. Ephesians 2.1 says this. It says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. I looked this up in the Greek. I trace it through the Septuagint. Let me tell you what that word really means in the original language. This word dead, you know what it means? It means dead. <laughs> Took me three hours to figure that out. Dead means dead. Dead means the absence of life. Now, if someone is dead physically, they're dead. Um, they don't decide one day to get undead, do they? They don't say, you know, this is pretty boring. This is a drag. You know, I haven't had chicken fried steak in six years. And so they don't suddenly will to become alive, do they? That's nonsensical. Dead men are dead. They have no ability, they have no capability to change their condition. Now, before we came to Christ, we were dead. You know what that means? That means on your own, you had no capability, 
you had no ability to change your condition. There's this concept in evangelical Christianity that is everywhere. And you know what the concept is? That anybody at any time can suddenly decide to come to Christ. That's not right. I'm sorry, but that's not what the Scripture teaches. Because you see, before we come to Christ, what is our condition? We're dead. Now, if we were unconscious, we might have a shot. We, we, might, we, might, we might wake up, but dead men don't wake up. If we were heavily sedated, we might have a chance. But we're not heavily sedated, we're dead. Follow this carefully, guys, in Ephesians 2. He says, for you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we all too formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Now catch this. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, now catch this, made us alive with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Here's what I want to say to you. He made you alive and gave you faith so that you could say, Lord Jesus, come into my life. That's why John Newton wrote Amazing Grace. That is amazing. If you can just come to Christ anytime you want, quite frankly, that's not so amazing. But if you're dead, see, the fact that you came to Christ is no different than Jesus being raised from the dead that we celebrated Easter. God rose you from the dead as he raised Jesus from the dead. That's what's so amazing about grace. He breathes life into us while we're dead. We wake up and say, Lord Jesus, come into my life. That's amazing. That's amazing. So is that the, I mean, that's wonderful. But let me ask you, is this the end of the story? He gave you physical life. He's given you spiritual life. Is that it? No. He has done all of this because he has a work for you to do that no one else could do. I remember the first time I heard Chuck, I heard a tape of Chuck. I was 27 years old. I was, uh, I was in my last year of seminary and somebody said, you ought to listen to this guy. Yeah, have you heard this guy? Swindler? Have you heard this guy? No, I've never heard of him. And they gave me this tape. And I remember Mary and I had just been married. We're driving from Arizona back to California. And I put this tape in, and I'm listening to this guy. And I'm thinking, this sucker's good. This guy can flat bring it. And then, you know what I, and, then, and then you know what I found myself thinking? I found myself thinking this. I wish I could be like him. I wish I could preach like him. I wish I had his gifts. I wish I could laugh like him. What a laugh. It's the best laugh in America. You know? I mean, I, I was just, I just thought, this guy's great. I wish I could be like him. Have you ever had that happen to you? 
You met somebody you've been impressed with and appreciate their gifts, and you, you walk away thinking, gosh, I wish I could be like him. You know what? God doesn't want you like him. God wants you to be you. He wants me to be me. He wants Chuck to be Chuck. He didn't want Chuck to be Billy Graham. He doesn't want Billy Graham to be, you know. So, see, he, he's got something for each of us to do, guys. He's made us. He's fashioned us. He's put us together. You see? He assigns us to our post. Uh, he physically brings us into existence. Then he saves us because he has a work for us to do. Now, you still with me? Okay. All right. Now, let's go to 10 real quick. But I'm going to pick it up from 8 because it's all connected. For by grace, you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that any man should boast. For, you see that connector? For, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we might walk in them. That's why you're alive. Note what it says. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. God has works for you to do. God has something for you to do that Chuck can't do. God has something for you to do that Billy Graham can't do. You say, what is it? I don't know what it is. I don't know. But you see, God has given you an assignment. He's given me an assignment. We all play different roles. We all play different parts. Uh, we, we, there are different instruments in the orchestra. All of them are important. All, uh, 1 Corinthians talks about the body. The eye is important. The ear is important. The ligaments are important. You don't think, if you don't think the ligaments are important, wait till that ligament doesn't work anymore. Suddenly that ligament is very important. Your ACL, you never think about it until it doesn't work. You see? All of those parts, are, we're all important in the body of Christ. We all play a role. We all have a position. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that you might walk in. What do you do on a trail? You walk. Um, God has something for you to do. God has a purpose for you. God has a plan for you that cannot, that cannot be thwarted. That cannot be, um, um, be, be waylaid or be sidetracked. God has a work for you to do that no one else can do. And you, catch this, you can't die until you do it. You can't die. And you say, well, Steve, I'm not a real gifted guy. I mean, I'm not a real well-known guy. I mean, I'm just kind of a... C.H. <clears throat> Spurgeon, a case could be made that C.H. Spurgeon was the most gifted preacher in the history of the Christian church. He still has. He, he preached in London. He died in the 1890s. Um, he still has like 60 volumes in print. I've, I've got 30 of his volumes on my, on my shelf. And I read the guy all the time. He was amazing, Spurgeon was. You know how Spurgeon came to know Christ? He was a teenage kid. He was visiting in the country it was a horrible storm. 
but he always went to church because he came from a quote-unquote Christian family. He shows up, the storm's so bad, the church was just a few, you know, yards from where he was staying in this little village. He shows up, there's hardly anybody there. The preacher doesn't show up. They're not even sure they're going to have church. One of the deacons gets up, a man that's sort of halting in speech, an uneducated man. He said, our pastor is obviously not going to be able to be here this morning. Um, he would open the word of God and proclaim it, but he's not here. I have never preached in my life. I am not a man uh, who is eloquent. Uh, but he opened up the scripture and he read it and he said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And C.H. Spurgeon heard that and was born again and was raised from death to life. That man never preached another sermon. That was the shortest sermon in the history of that church. <laughs> I mean, that, that, it didn't take three minutes. It didn't take three minutes. Spurgeon didn't even get the man's name. He tried for the rest of his life to find out who that man was so he could write him a note of thanks. He could never track him down. He died without knowing that man's identity, his name, who he was, his position. But that quote-unquote insignificant man no one's insignificant but from the world's eyes man who probably worked with a, probably a farmer probably out in the fields not gifted not educated not articulate that was the man who was faithful that was the man who showed up at his post on that morning and that was the man that God used to bring into the kingdom who they call the prince of all the preachers C.H. Spurgeon that was his assignment. That was his role. And he couldn't die until he did it. That's the grace of God. The grace of God is all over you. It says we are his what? We are his workmanship. That's the Greek word poema. That's where we get our word poem. Now I'm going to end with this. You say, wait a minute, Steve, you're telling me that's the Greek word for poem. You're telling me that says I'm God's poem? That's what it says. We are his workmanship, we are his poem. You might think to yourself, well, wait a minute, I thought poems were supposed to rhyme. <laughs> well, they are. And you might be saying to yourself, well, you know what, Steve? There's no rhyme in my life. Well, here's my question to you. Does every word in a poem rhyme the answer is no you don't get to a rhyme until you get to the end of the line that's where you find the rhyme the fact of the matter is some of you guys where you are tonight you're three words away from a rhyme and you don't know it if you're in a tough circumstance you think God has forgotten about you if you think God has abandoned you if you're stuck on the trail, if you're confused, if you're unclear. But can I say this to you? If you're open to the Lord, if you're teachable, if you want him to guide you, if you want him to lead you, if you're confused though about what's going on and you've lost your purpose, your reason for all those things, and some great calamity has happened in your life, you've had some great setback, that doesn't mean that God is finished with you. As I read the scriptures, one of the most amazing things to me is that before God 
greatly uses someone, they usually have a great setback. They have a great calamity. They have a great chapter in their life where things just fall apart. And they think they're done and they think they're finished. I might have told you guys this, but uh, two years ago, on December 4th, that was really a rough day for me. It was a rough day for me because I was depressed and I was a little bit baffled and I was really struggling with the Lord because for three years, Mary and I had been praying about something that we believed to be the will of God. In three years, we had not seen one iota of movement from God on this issue that we were praying about. Not one ounce of movement. I was discouraged. I was depressed. I've been praying for three years. Nothing. Now, if I, I dealt with, I struggled with that all day long. Now, if I had known that 14 days later, God was going to answer that prayer, would I have been depressed on December 4th? No. No. See, I thought it was over. I thought God wasn't going to come through. I, thought, I was 14 days away from a rhyme, and I didn't know it. But see, I was tired of waiting. You know what? We hate to wait. But you know why you're waiting? Because the grace of God is working. And the grace of God is getting everything ready. And the grace of God is putting everything into place for you. Let me give you a great verse. And we're done. Isaiah 64, 4. Here's what Isaiah 64, 4 says. It says, No eye has seen a God like thee who works for those who wait for him. One more time. No eye has seen a God like thee who works for those who wait for him. While you're waiting, God is working. How long have you been waiting? You say, man, a long time. Um, don't lose sight of the fact that he's working. See, you know why we get discouraged when we wait? Because we think nothing's happening. All kinds of things are happening. God is moving circumstances, people, situations. He, he's, God will literally move heaven and hell to accomplish his purpose and his will in your life. That's the grace of God. It just isn't time yet. But when it's time, it's going to happen. How long was Joseph in the dungeon? Two years. He waited for two years. So one night, by chance, Pharaoh has a dream. There is no chance. Pharaoh was the most powerful man on the face of the earth. You know why Pharaoh had a dream that night? Let me tell you why. Because God said, hey, you Egyptian wuss, dream this. <laughs> Chumping little squirt, running around sitting on that throne like you're some hot shot. Let me tell you something. I could have changed that sperm and you would have had three eyes coming out of your head, you little punk. <laughs> most powerful man on the face of the earth. God says, hey, dream this, sucker. 
This guy's drinking seven fat cows, seven lean cows. He wakes up. He's just freaked out. What? Is, what? Gets all those guys together. Hey, hey you know, seven fat. What, what does this mean? They didn't know what it mean. I mean, they went to Harvard and Yale. How would they know? I mean, the, the things of God are spiritually discerned. And then, you know, I'm a, and, you know a guy, and all of a sudden this guy standing there remembers Joseph. Now, when he was in the dungeon with Joseph and he was leaving to go back to Pharaoh, Joseph said to him, don't forget me. And what did the guy do? He forgot. You know why he forgot? It wasn't time. God wanted him to forget. But see, now it was time. The guy's standing there. And all of a sudden, he remembered. Do you know why he remembered? God told him to remember. He goes, hey, there's this Jewish kid down there, and we had this dream, and the baker and the cupbearer, you know, dreams, and he went, you're going to live, you're going to die. It, exactly what he said happened. He says, go get that sucker. They go get Joseph. They clean him up. Run him through the showers. Get him the manicure, facial. Get him a robe, the whole thing. 45 minutes later, he's standing in front of Pharaoh. He says, I can't interpret this. There's a God in heaven who's created all things. Seven fat cows, seven years of prosperity like you've never seen. There's going to be seven years of famine like you can't imagine. You better appoint someone to run this thing because God's bringing judgment. He looks at Joseph. He goes, you're the man. And in 45 minutes, Joseph went from the lowest place in Egypt to being co-regent, second most powerful man on the face of the earth. Because it was time. He couldn't die. He couldn't die until his work was done, until it was finished. You can't either. The grace of God was all over Joseph in all his disappointment, in being sold into slavery, in all the negatives, and being falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. The grace of God was all over him as it's all over you. That's the grace of God. I can sleep tonight. I'm not worrying tonight. I'm not going to be anxious tonight. And you're not either. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your grace. It never stops. It, uh, it's always an operation. It's perpetual. The fact that we just took a breath is because of your grace. The fact that we can hear these words is because of grace. The fact that we're not in prison is because of grace. The fact that we live in a free nation is because of grace. The fact that we're going to die is of grace because you're going to promote us and bring us to be with you forever and there'll be no pain and there'll be no suffering and there'll be no crying. And we don't like to think about death because we think about leaving our loved ones and we wonder how they'll get along without us, but... You love them more than we do and you will provide for them and give them everything we need because quite frankly, they're not dependent on us anyway. They are dependent on you. We are just the vehicle by which provision is made. But when you promote us, you will use other means to take care of them because it's all of your grace. So tonight we rest. Our anxiety uh, goes down. There is a slot for us. There is a purpose for us. And even if we can't see it right now, that's just because we're kind of in a dungeon like Joseph was, and it wasn't clear. It wasn't clear because it wasn't time. It wasn't clear because he wasn't ready, and we're not ready. 
But when it's ready and when you put it together and the timing is right, we will know why we have been created. I pray for every guy that you'll encourage us. Every man will be encouraged tonight by your marvelous, marvelous grace. We live off of it. It's there when we're rebellious. It's there when we're sinful. It's, it's there when we are bitter. Your grace is still there. That's why we can always come. You'll never turn us away. How fortunate we are. In Jesus' name, we give thanks for this. Amen.